Hi, everybody. This is a special one-off uh, podcast um, about the Freedom Convoy and the supporting rallies that um, popped up all over the country, including um, here in Winnipeg. Um, if you're like me and you're concerned about these sorts of things, these things happening, we got to learn about them. We got to know where they come from. And more importantly, we got to know um, how to beat them. So that's what I wanted to do here. I grew up in southern Manitoba, where most of the resistance to the COVID mandates are in Manitoba. There are a lot of conservative Mennonites there, and that contributes to their it contributes to their hostility to uh, government activity that existed well before COVID. And so I want to talk about some of the relationships between the Freedom Convoy the far right, and Mennonites, because there are a lot. And I don't just want to give my opinions on it. I'm just trying to share information that I know, that I've learned, that I've read, that I've been taught by other people who know more than me in real life, and share it with um, whoever can use it. If you're like me, you've seen a rightward drift among some friends or family members, community members, especially if you're especially if you're from a small town in southern Manitoba. Um, you know a lot of people whose views have changed or showing sides of themselves that you don't understand. It's, it's disturbing. So um, it kind of feels like the mask is coming off on something kind of like creepier, creepy or horrible, and you don't really know what to make of it. Um, but the this Freedom Rally phenomenon thing is a good... Uh, example uh, to use to help tease out like uh, what's going on with your conservative friends or your co-workers or whoever whoever it is that you find is like has been like sliding down the far rightward path or whatever for for a number of years um, I guess the short answer is um, it didn't just happen there are um, there are historical reasons for it. There are generational reasons for it. And other people have noticed and other people have talked about it. Other people have written down their thoughts about it. And so we can, we can learn from them. We can develop our own analysis and then we can share with other people around to help. Um, if not, keep people from sliding farther to the right around us. Um, that might be a lost cause already, I'm sorry to say. But there are other people around them who might be family members or friends or co-workers or employed by them who have no choice and can't, can't leave, you can't set up strong personal boundaries, maybe you don't have a relationship where you can uh, talk directly or honestly to them. So in that case, um, you need to protect yourself get some information, learn about what's happening, and maybe help protect other people around you from sliding down that same path or getting sucked in by this far-right person. Or um, better yet, so that you can develop uh, relationships of care and solidarity um, that lead to uh, like a lasting, lasting networks or structures that can resist that can resist this type of uh, far-right influence uh, in your families and communities. Because when you're, 
you're on the ground with a community member, a family member, a coworker. Like that's that's the front line. Um, online doesn't really matter. It's where radicalization happens. But um, yelling at people online, tweeting, making snarky posts, even posting articles and sharing thoughts among your like-minded compatriots online, all fine and good, dandy, fine to to joke about the turkeys in Ottawa. All that stuff is perfectly fine. Um, but you do need to do things in real life if you want to stop this from happening. There's no option there. You have to log off. You have to stop joking around or pretending what's happening isn't happening. You do have to actually uh, do some work. A lot of people don't have a lot of free time to do extracurricular work. No problem. You can do this work at work if you want to um, or at home. But the thing is, if you can be offline, doing work offline as much as possible, uh, that's the key as much as you're able to. If you can't do much or can't do anything other than listen to podcasts or read articles or post things online, then that's that's fine too. Do what you can. But anywho, um, so let's jump in. Let's talk about what the Freedom Convoy is. What is its relation to the far right? And I'm going to be talking specifically about fascism here. So don't be afraid. I am going to be saying the fascism word. We're going to be talking about fascism a little bit. I'm not saying that the Freedom Convoy is all fascist, that there's only fascists in the Freedom Convoy. If your friends are sliding to the far right, they're fascists already. I'm not saying that that's happening, but it's interesting to look at the free, the Freedom Convoy and compare it to some of the classical um, definitions of fascism that uh, emerged in the earlier 20th century. Those things didn't really go away either. So we can we can talk about that. It doesn't mean that fascists are taking over Canada. I'm not saying that either. We're just using it to um, using it to compare and contrast and see what, see what's happening. And then um, since we're in southern Manitoba and I am a Mennonite myself, why are there so many Mennonites that are involved with and or leading the iterations of the Freedom Convoy here in Manitoba? We had a border blockade. Now they've moved to um, occupying an area around the legislature in Winnipeg. They're currently there now. It is February. It's February the 8th. So we have a far-right uh, occupation at the legislature. I'm saying occupation in the same way that Occupy Wall Street was, was an occupation. I'm not saying it's a military occupation. They're there. They're hanging out. They've been there for a number of days. The Freedom Convoy in Ottawa has been there for a week and a half, almost two weeks now. I think the police are starting to make an effort to clear them off, but it certainly took them a while. Um, and they might be there for a while yet. Who's to say? This is an emerging situation. We don't really know how it's going to end, but um, we can still learn about it. We can still talk about it. So... Uh, yeah, let's dive in. So what is what is the Freedom Convoy? The Freedom Convoy, also called the Trucker Convoy, um, it's a convoy of big rigs, semi-trucks, personal pickups, um, vehicles of all sorts uh, that were organized 
to drive from all the part, different parts of the country and converge on Ottawa as a protest against um, a vaccine mandate for crossing the border uh, for truckers and the trucking industry. That's the specific issue. That's the specific issue at play. That's the specific one that they uh, want mandated out or dropped or whatever. They're also calling for the dropping of all COVID restrictions and mandates nationwide. Um, I think the resignation or removal of Trudeau um, as prime minister. Um, I think those are their, their main ones. They haven't succeeded in accomplishing any of those yet. Um, but shortly after they arrived in Ottawa, they did accomplish uh, the Conservative Party removing uh, O'Toole, Aaron O'Toole, um, as their leader and replaced um, by an interim leader called Candace Bergen. She's even more far right than O'Toole. She's famously photographed wearing a MAGA hat. So she's kind of more, she's more of a far right sort of populist Trump kind of, kind of strain there. Um, she's also of Mennonite extraction from Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. So keep in mind as we're going forward, the role of Southern Manitoban uh, Mennonites uh, in all this. So now we have a Mennonite from Southern Manitoba who is the leader of the Conservative Party, the National Conservative Party. I'll post a link in the description just fleshing out more what the Freedom Convoy is, who's organizing it, who's organizing it, who's involved in it, that sort of thing. But short answer, this is like, this is the Trumpian right um, in Canada. There's also um, solidarity convoys happening in the United States right now. It's organized by that sort of far right element. There's uh, organizers are from, uh, they've organized a previous convoy in 2019 uh, was that the Let It Roll convoy? United We Roll. I think that's what it was. That was in 2019. Uh, that was. These are the same organizers. Some of the organizers are also involved in the Yellow Vest protests, the Yellow Vest movement in Alberta, the Alberta separatist movement, um, that sort of thing. Some are noted white supremacists. There's grifters of all sorts. Uh, a GoFundMe was set up to collect donations. They raised over $10 million until over $10 million until the GoFundMe account was shut down. Um, I think donations are being refunded. Um, one of the organizers, I think her name is Tara Litch, then uh, asked people to send donations to her personal email account. So there's no uh, accountability for where these donations are going. They're going to a personal email account. That's called a scam. Anyone participating in the convoy, truckers thinking they're going to get reimbursed, who knows if that's going to happen? Probably not. And also what you can do with this is the donations are anonymous, so you don't know who's donating what. And I think there's already been some uh, connections made between anonymous donations and donations made uh, by Americans. So there's a lot of like foreign donations coming in. Um, American politicians are have come out in support. Donald Trump issued um, a statement of support. I think Donald Trump Jr., I think like all the usual suspects there are tweeting in support of this freedom convoy. 
It's a so-called freedom convoy. It's not actually about freedom at all. And it's also not about truckers. Um, the Canadian Trucking Alliance uh, issued a statement condemning the convoy. 90, over 90% of truckers are already vaccinated and can move freely across the border. So this is a small minority of truckers that wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and it's their choice whether they are get vaccinated or not and can, can, and can continue moving across the border. So, um, and it's also, these aren't trucking employees either. These are owner operators and owners of, of trucking businesses. And I should say smaller, more very regional trucking businesses. Uh, these are not employees of these businesses. These are like owners and operators of these businesses. So this is not, they're framing it as uh, a bit of like, like a workers movement or that they're acting on behalf of ordinary people. This is an extremely small minority of people, of well-off, well-to-do people, people who, people who are already extremely uh, privileged and entitled. I think of it as uh, the most annoying and obnoxious entitled people in your small town all getting together and whooping it up, parting it up in your downtown city. Uh, meanwhile, there's like literally people living in a bus shelter next door. That sort of uh, element, that sort of paradox, whatever it is. So mixed in with this group, and it's not by coincidence, there's a healthy element of um, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, um, generally extremely like deranged and unsavory characters of all sorts. People have been assaulted, verbally abused. Reports of um, like uh, of harassment of people assumed to be LGBTQ. Someone, some people tried to uh, burn down an apartment building uh, where the residents were complaining about the noise that was happening. So some people actually like lit a fire in the hallway of this apartment building and then duct taped the doors shut so that people couldn't escape from the building. No one was hurt. The building didn't burn down. Thankfully. But uh, these sorts of things are happening uh, in Ottawa and related similar things are happening uh, here in Winnipeg as well. Um, someone drew a neo-Nazi uh, symbol in the snow in front of the legislature here. You see like swastikas, um, a Canadian maple leaf inside like a Nazi flag, that kind of thing. If you've seen it... Uh, Online, anywhere, I'm sure you're aware of that, what's, uh, what's happening. They're portraying it as just as regular people with some, like, unsavory elements mixed in. Um, there's a connection between these types of small business, obnoxious, entitled people and the unsavory elements. It's not a coincidence. Speaking from experience. You also see, also see people flying flags or displaying symbols of Q. That's the QAnon conspiracy theory movement, I guess. They're conspiracy theory aficionados. I'm not going to get into what QAnon is. You can look it up. It's pretty deranged. Basically, they think they're living in some sort of a apocalyptic time. There's a global cabal of like uh, pedophiles and deep state people who are uh, making the world worse for everybody and doing bad things. And then people like Donald Trump or whatever are, um, gonna bring usher in some sort of messianic, uh, utopian age of, um, goodness and plenty for all. And, uh, 
and whatnot. I might be even messing that up, whatever. I'm not going to be debating about QAnon, but uh, if you don't know about it, you don't need to. So the conspiracy theory element is also uh, huge within this crowd as well. And that's also not a not a coincidence, because if you don't understand the world around you, you're going to have to resort to conspiracies to explain it. We can't know everything about the world around us, but we can know a lot, because a lot of the stuff has happened before, and we can learn from them. It's not tough. We just have to want to do it, to put in time. It takes effort. Okay, so that's the Freedom Convoy. And so what is, what is the Freedom Convoy? What is, an exp- what is it an, exp- an expression of? What sort of historical conditions are, are in play? What sort of, uh, what sort of societal m- movements are working themselves out here? To help us understand that, I'm going to be talking about fascism. We're going to be, so what is, what is fascism? What does it have to do with the Freedom Convoy? Is the Freedom Convoy fascist? There are certainly fascists uh, involved in the Freedom Convoy. Whether the Freedom Convoy is fascist or not, I would say it's potentially an expression of an emergent fascism, but we don't know that yet. We don't live in the future. We don't know how this is going to play out. Uh, it certainly could be. So to define f- fascism, we have uh, a classic book by Clara Zetkin called Fighting Fascism, How to Struggle and, and How to Win. And Clara Zetkin was a communist, a uh, politician and activist in Germany in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so don't be afraid that this is a communist. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, um, you're probably closer to the left anyway, or left-leaning at the very least. And when you talk about the far right, uh, the counter to the far right are socialists, communists, anarchists, uh, that kind of strain... So you're going to encounter that there, and they're going to know what they're talking about, uh, far much more so than, say, like your average liberal or social democrat or or whatever, because uh, the far left, the socialists, the anarchists, those are the main targets of fascism. So they're talking from personal experience. And in the first wave of of fascism, um, they paid a heavy price. they were purged, killed, exiled, lost their jobs, places, standings in society. Um, the fascists specifically targeted uh, members of the, of the far left. So when a representative of the far left is talking about what fascism is, they're talking from personal experiences because they know, they encountered it personally, they knew the fascists personally. In this case, Claire Zetkin uh, was a member of the German parliament, the Reichstag, I believe it's called, uh, at the same time that the Nazis were in power in Germany. So she is directly in contact with them. And um, there's a good definition of fascism in the introduction of her book, Fighting Fascism. And we'll just go through that and then compare it to the trucker convoy and see what's going on there. Fascism is... N- Notoriously a slippery concept, a slippery thing to pin down and define. Uh, What all the definitions of fascism generally have in common is that they agree that uh, fascism is is a far-right movement that emerges when capitalism is in crisis, uh, when the economy is in decline, uh, when people are suffering. This is 
this is something that emerges from the far right at that time. There's other definitions of fascism than this. This is just one of the classic ones. And it's pretty comprehensive. So it's a good, it's a good place to start. So in the, in the introduction to the book, in the section of uh, fascism's characteristics, there's just a bullet point list. So I'll go through, go through that. Right off the bat, it says, Fascism's emergence is inextricably tied to the economic crisis of capitalism and the decline of its in- institutions. This crisis is characterized by escalating attacks on the working class and by the middle layers of society being increasingly squeezed and driven down into the proletariat. There's some jargon going on here, so uh, let's define some of this some of this uh, socialist jargon, shall we? Um, economic crisis of capitalism. Capitalism is the economic system that we live under. The economic system based on private property and profit, uh, financed by credit. You could say it's basically that. It's our economy right now. We don't have a socialist or communist economy. Our economic system is called capitalism. Profit, private property, uh, finance capital, those are, those are pillars of, of it. And if you've noticed, it's, it's characterized by boom and bust cycles. We've had a number of, I'm 40 years old, um, there's been a number of recessions during my lifetime. The 2008 called the, we had the Great Recession. Um, we've probably been living in a in a recession in re- recessionary conditions for the last few years and and the covid crisis pandemic hasn't uh, hasn't helped that so when the economy is depressed people are suffering when the economy is depressed your people are depressed so you got to redistribute that wealth or better yet uh, let the people administer the economy themselves or else something bad happens um then that's one of the conditions in which fascism uh, emerges. And the de- decline of its institutions, that's like the government, the police, um, the judicial system. Um, these are capitalist institutions. The government is a capitalist institution. Our ruling class are capitalists. It's our economy, like we said. So when you have decline in faith in the government, like we're happening, like what's happening now, uh, decline in uh, decline in general agreement that the government is good, doing good things. Like here in Manitoba, the um, the Conservative Party that's in power now is one of the m- least popular uh, ruling governments in Canada. I think it's something like twenty eight percent or whatever. This is the Conservative Party. They're explicitly capitalist. Um, the far right always confuses what socialism and communism is versus what capitalism is i've heard people uh tell me that the conservative government here is communist that's completely bullshit it's obviously not true they are capitalists our premier heather stephenson who took over after our previous premier uh pallister brian pallister resigned uh, she has three dogs named harper thatcher and reagan so um Noted communists. Uh, the far right doesn't know what communism is. It tends to call communism whatever it is that they don't like is communism. Whenever the government does something is communism or socialism, that is not the case. And there's deep-rooted reasons why they get this wrong, uh, especially in southern Manitoba in in Mennonite communities. Um, we might circle around to that. 
Again, maybe not. So this crisis is characterized by escalating attacks on the working class. Who is the working class? The working class is anyone who uh, works for a living, who receives a paycheck or a salary from an employer or a boss. Anyone who doesn't own their own business, anyone who's not an artisan owns their own tools. Uh, If you go to work, any sort of job, at a factory, at an office, uh, you're working for a company for someone else. Even if you're uh, like a government, like a civil servant or an academic, you're working for someone else. You're getting a paycheck. You're getting a, a salary. Salaries are just fancy words for paychecks, by the way. Um, and by middle layers of society being increasingly squeezed, middle layers, middle layers being like s- small businessmen, like uh, more independent professionals, uh, middle managers, that kind of thing. What we broadly refer to as the the middle class. It's sort of nebulous. Class is v- is pretty definite but when you're talking about middle layers it gets a little bit more of a more uh more nuanced there's more gray area there but middle layers being think more like small businessmen and um more highly paid more independent type professionals and managers Uh, recently people have been talking about the professional managerial class this is roughly the middle layers the PMC. There's some debate about whether this is accurate or not. Is it a distinct class or not? That's just something that you might have heard and and be familiar with. And they're and they're being increasingly squeezed and driven down into the proletariat. That is the working class again. And that's something that happens regularly when during recessions, during hard times. Um, small business people are always afraid of losing their business. Why are they afraid of losing their business? What's bad about being a worker? What's bad about working uh, for someone else? They have an ideology, a philosophy, a whole worldview, a whole identity built around being an owner, being an owner of private property. This is you're you're a real citizen. You're a real participant in society. If you are an owner of private property, if you're an owner of capital, that is private property that you can use to make a profit, that you can use to make money. That's what they mean by freedom. This is what their idea of freedom is. That's what being a free man, a free person means, is uh, owning private property and being sovereign over that property. Of course, by extension, that means if you own a business, being sovereign over that business and the people who work at that business. And any government attempted regulation and taxation of the of that business and your profits is an encroachment on your freedom and is therefore the same as socialism and communism. So that's the that's the breakdown of that ideology. And small business owners are aspirational in that a lot of them do do the physical work of their job. Um, they might have a few employees, or they m- might only need employees seasonally, but they're the ones that own the whole operation. And you have that, you're afraid of losing it, and you're also aspirational to move up so that you don't have to do the grunt work anymore. You can sit around the office and manage it or go on long vacations or have a cottage or retire early. And that business, your employees are going to do your work while you're off uh, on your fishing trip or hanging out in Mexico or whatever. That's living the dream. So they're afraid of losing that, and that breeds anxiety and drives um, drives them into conflict with uh, with working people who just who are on the bottom rung anyway. They just want to survive, pay their bills, kind of just be like left alone. 
they want to contribute their fair share, but they want good lives too. So there's a there's a conflict between uh, wages and profit there that happens directly in that small business relationship. And politicians are always saying that small business is the backbone of of Canada, and they mean that they they mean that the small business is is their chosen form. Um, chosen form of societal structure and that that and it uh, it has the effect of of sort of disciplining the working class which is much much larger than the middle class than the, than the small business owning class the professional class like the 99% versus the 1% you'd be surprised who's part of the 1% there are a lot of uh, wealthy small business owners and landowners farmers and landlords in southern manitoba so that is really the backbone um in this in our province especially in in the south and when you have those people put under stress there's a crisis they're going to act out and and uh so that's one of the conditions for for fascism they'll they have a far right bent anyway they're pro-capitalist they're told that they are like the uh the golden boys and and golden sons and daughters of of capitalism but uh the government is hurting them or what they think of as the government is hurting them so they lash out and fascism is part of that second point the rise of fascism is based on the proletariat's failure to resolve capitalism's social crisis by taking power and beginning to reorganize society this failure of working class leadership breeds demoralization among workers and among the forces within society that had looked to the proletariat and socialism as a way out of the crisis. And you can see that you can see that very clearly within the last decade starting with the Occupy Wall Street movement um and then the uh the Bernie Sanders movement, the Jeremy Corbyn movement in the UK. I don't think Canada really had their own analog to that. Uh, we got the uh, Justin Trudeau movement, which is the o- the Obama analog. Here, we don't we didn't get a Sanders or a, or a Corbyn. But what I noticed specifically um, in specifically with the Sanders movement in 2015, before the Trump was elected, I had a bunch of friends who were really pro Bernie, who were really excited um, about what this about what Bernie was doing. And then when uh, when Bernie was ousted or beat by Hillary under nefarious circumstances, which we won't get into here, he was beat by Hillary for the Democratic nomination. On a dime, they turned like on mass. They turned turned far right, and uh, I think that's a pr- that's a good example of what of what this bullet point means. Uh, when you have a crisis, an economic crisis where people are suffering. Uh, the bourgeois that is like the owning class, they're, they're not resolving it. And then the, it's up to the working class to resolve that economic crisis for themselves. And what the Bernie movement was, was a galvanization of ordinary people, ordinary working people around the idea that ordinary working people could do that. Um, well, so that when that was crushed in the States, that was extremely demoralizing for a lot of people who really have been sincerely hoping for a better world that there was that our government could bring a better world for us um that we could improve society somewhat through the existing uh channels i know i have been hoping for that my entire life 
but it didn't seem to be happening. And and the, uh, the defeat of Bernie in 2015, and then again being railroaded by uh, the Biden faction in the last election, basically doing the same the same thing over again. That was really sort of the the nail in the coffin for uh, that sort of uh, really pie in the sky ideological hopefulness that the um, society could be shaped uh, by ordinary people uh, through the existing government apparatus. So when that happens, and then there's no corresponding follow-up by working-class leadership, mostly through the labor un- the labor movement with unions, uh, the activists, various uh, social movements, social justice movements, um, the activists' sort of class, I don't know what you would call it, um, the new left, I guess. They're the left is functionally non-existent in North America, I would say. There are vestiges of it, but no part, one of these vestiges is strong enough to um, harness the energy and coordinated action of ordinary working people to an extent to, uh, counter, to counter economic forces that are driving people down into poverty, making people lose businesses, lose their houses work for lower and lower wages in increasingly uh, worsening conditions, the rise of like gig work and, and that sort of thing. It's just, it's just pretty bleak. So um, there is no, there is no functional left that can, that can counter um, to counter the establishment that's, Establish control over really what has been like a, a dying society over the last, I don't know, 40 years, whenever the post-war boom ended. Reading along, these social forces, Zetkin indicated, had hoped that, quote, socialism could bring about global change. These ex- expectations were painfully shattered. They lost their belief not only in the reformist leaders, but also in socialism itself. And I, I think that's what happened uh, here with the with the Bernie Sanders movement. Um, we should probably define socialism as well. Again, a bit of a sticky term. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but uh, my understanding, uh, how I've been taught to think of socialism is that it's a radical commitment to democracy in all areas of life and society. So that's uh, democracy in government and democracy in the workplace, democracy in the community. That's basically it. That's democratic control of all aspects of society by uh, ordinary working people uh, and people by ev- by everybody, basically. And uh, working people and those who rely on working people are the vast majority of society. So it it would be society controlled by ordinary people. Basically, I think of it as the type of world that we were taught that we were already growing up in. Uh, but we know is not the case anymore. Um, so, um, the world as we hoped it would be, but for real, this has taken a a lot of forms over the centuries. Uh, don't want to talk about the Soviet union or China or whatever, but, uh, just we're not be assured. We're not talking about the Soviet union or China. Those are uh, different things. Some people consider them socialism or communism, and they definitely portrayed themselves as that, but that is not the type of uh, thing that we're talking about when we're talking about socialism. We're just t- talking about uh, democratic control uh, in 
Uh, the government, workplace, and communities. That's it. Reading along, fascism possesses a mass character with a special appeal to petty bourgeois layers threatened by the decline of the capitalist order. Again, we already talked about that. The capitalist decline results in the proletariat. The capitalist decline results in the proletarianization of very broad petty bourgeois and middle bourgeois masses. The calamitous conditions among small peasants and the bleak distress of the intelligentsia. What weighs on them above all is the lack of security for their basic existence. I think that describes a lot of people right now. Um, a lot of people I know anyway. Um, yeah, the proletarianization is when you lose your business and then you become an ordinary worker like everybody else. That's extremely, well, that's extremely traumatic for families. Uh, a lot of families can't withstand that. It just busts them apart. Uh, they don't have like um, a social understanding for what's happening. So especially if you're from a religious background, a conservative religious background, uh, like I am, that gets internalized in the sense of personal sin, and people are very happy to let you know that you have personally sinned and wound up in uh, in your situation by uh, uh, by your own actions, or God has not blessed you for some reason. We can't really who's to say why, but anyway, uh, you don't you don't have a house or a business anymore. You can still hang out with us, but you're not really uh, you're not really the same as us anyway. You could be a charity case. There's no, we'll help you, but uh, I don't know. Really, there's only so much extent that that we can help you and our and our patients, uh, and our patients will uh, run out eventually. And I'm talking about personal experience because that happened with my family in the '80s uh, when I was growing up. My grandfather uh, owned multiple businesses, uh, a lot of land. Um, Lost it all in the recessions of the 80s when interest rates went through the roof and uh, he was financed to the hilt. Bad timing, all that stuff. Um, so he lost it all. I don't think uh, my dad, being the eldest son, really uh, was uh, prepared for, for that. We had no um, context for being like uh, a working class person without any uh, family safety net. And that's a really tough position to be in. Um, I'm working class now myself. I know this. I'm not a small business person. I don't own. I don't own a business. It'd be extremely difficult for me to even like acquire acquire the capital to do it. But again, that's not where the economic forces are flowing. They're flowing downward into downward mobility. Increasing proletarianization is that means downward mobility. So my family's, that story of my grandfather is very similar to stories of lots of other people. It happened a lot. It was common in the 80s. It was common uh, in the 2008 crisis in the States, the housing bubble and whatnot. And with COVID now, more it's becoming more common again now. So this, these are the type of forces at play. And I do want to clarify any family who's listening my dad isn't part of the far right. <laughs> uh, he's actually done a really good job, I think, of uh, keeping a level head and being aware of what his situation is. And I think that's helped helped him a lot, where a lot of other people um, wouldn't be equipped to um, to handle that traumatic, well, like, what's an extremely, 
like traumatic event for for a family. Um, so good, good on him. The intelligentsia here it could refer to these are the people who pretend to know what's happening. A lot of them do know somewhat what's happening, but they're very like specialized. Let's think of them as like academics or uh, academics scientists like members of the professional class who um who mold social opinion people look to for directions and and answers people who sort of like have their fingers on the pulse of the zeitgeist or whatever you want to call it or you could even just call it like the uh uh twitter people who twitter people i don't know people who go on social media and post what's happening people who write articles and blogs and and have magazines um, that are just like websites where them and their friends post stuff. That's the intelligentsia. And the intelligentsia here now, you'd... Media pundits. That's a good one, too. Talking heads on TV. Uh, they don't know what's going on, really. Uh, they're trying to know what's going on. Or they're trying to present an idea of what they think people want to hear what's going on. They have careers and and public profiles to maintain, that kind of thing. But you'll notice that they don't really... They're kind of just as lost as the rest of us. You can take what they are saying with a grain of salt if you think it's good or it aligns with your views. You're going to pay attention to them anyway. Um, but the thing to know is that they're commentators. The intelligentsia is are commentators. They're not actors. And ordinary people, ordinary working people, are actors. Um, or any ordinary person is, a, is an actor. And when you have uh, mass action, mass coordinated action, then that's a movement. And that's, uh, the intelligentsia can be part of that movement, but they're essentially uh, commentators. And the commentary that we get from a lot of our intelligentsia now is extremely bleak and empty and they're not offering a lot of um practical actionable solutions and that again that vacuum of lack of solutions lack of leadership lack of uh, power of ordinary people contributes to the rise of of the far right and fascism uh and the rise of conspiracy theory thinking conspiratorial thinking to win support from these layers fascism makes use of an anti-capitalist demagogy masses in their thousands streamed to fascism it became an asylum for all the politically homeless the socially uprooted the destitute and the disillusioned the petty bourgeois and intermediate social forces at first vacillate indecisively between the powerful historical camps of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie they are induced to sympathize with the proletariat by their life's suffering and in part by their soul's noble longings and high ideals so long as it's, it is revolutionary in its conduct and seems to have prospects for victory. Under the pressure of the masses and their needs, and thus influenced by the situation, even the fascist leaders are forced to at least flirt with the revolutionary proletariat, even though they may not have any sympathy with it. And this is important. In the Freedom Convoy, it's being portrayed as these are ordinary truckers fighting for freedom uh, for the rest of us, for all ordinary people. And... That's a sham. That's not the case. This is a small minority of uh, well-to-do business owners. Uh, and it's not just truckers, 
business owners of of all stripes like there's uh the owner of mj's cafe in steinbeck is in ottawa with a penner international truck for some reason um bakeries in grunthal are showing up to the to the occupation here in winnipeg so it's um it's a uniting of like a pan small business sort of coalition all the like chambers of commerce of your of your small towns your church boards you see lots of lots of farmings farming equipment and and farmers in the in the convoys like farmers aren't ordinary people anymore these are generally like very like very wealthy multimillionaires um these are corporations now um farmers owned like huge tracts of land um so they're mostly white mostly male mostly from like like ethnically homogenous and they're portraying themselves as as a mass of ordinary canadians or at least they're acting on behalf of all ordinary canadians um when they're a really small small group relatively speaking um so the it's an asylum for the politically homeless socially uprooted the destitute and disillusioned and this is sort of where you get your more like deranged uh elements of it like it's no one's fault for suffering there's no it's no one's fault for becoming mentally ill really uh it's no one's fault for being thrust into a situation that is out of your control and you don't have tools to deal with that is not your fault um so uh when that happens people will turn to whatever is handily available if you happen to be from a small town or from a family who has roots in a very conservative uh ethnically homogenous insular uh radical religious group such as the mennonites hutterites etc even the mennonites that have assimilated that's still your like cultural conditioning that's still happening in your brain You're, you still are are molded by that your parents grew up in it your grandparents grew up in it it's passed on to you through your family and it doesn't give you a very broad picture of the world you can't understand how the world works that way um, if you're from a group who spent 500 years like running away from the world, you're not going to know how the world works. You're only going to be able to see like shadows of it. Um, you're going to be filling in a lot of blanks and you're going to be using whatever you have on hand to fill in those blanks. And whatever you have on hand isn't necessarily going to be the best type of information, not going to be the best type of people. It's not going to be people with a good grasp of of a broader reality. So they sympathize with the working class, maybe even see themselves as the working class, but they're, they're not. There's like physical material uh, differences that create a conflict with the working class. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't uh, paper it over with a uniting ideology. You can try, but those conflicts will always uh, reemerge. You can do a good marketing job. So that's what this, what the freedom convoy is, is trying to do is do marketing. Uh, but it's really, it's really a conflict between different parts of the ruling class, like the owning class, the class that says we need vaccine mandates, we need vaccine passports, uh, we need to get everybody vaccinated, but we want to do so as cheaply as possible. We're cutting off all social assistance. We're not upgrading inf infrastructure. We're not upgrading ventilation. We're not doing any real mass messaging about what actually 
works and helps people. We're not putting money into healthcare. Uh, we're not expanding the public services that are in crisis. Um, that's a capitalist reaction. And then we have another group of capitalists of a different character. It's like, we don't want any of that at all. We don't want any of that money going anywhere. Um, we haven't, and we haven't been vaccinated ourselves. So we feel like there's been a two year lockdown happening when there hasn't been, we've been mostly not locked down even still now. Um, but for them, for, for, uh, people who haven't been vaccinated, it is a literal two year lockdown. So that's what they're talking about with the ending of the lockdowns and whatnot. And this isn't ordinary working people don't have a choice. Uh, they're still going to work. They're still exposing themselves. They're getting sick. Vulnerable people, same thing. We, we don't have a choice. We're going to be, um, like, we haven't been able to be safe this whole time. Um, so that's part of the character of what's happening again. They're trying to co-opt that uh, experience of the ordinary person without ever experiencing what it is to be an ordinary person. The next point is fascist ideology elevates the nation and state above all class contradictions and class interests. That's, I guess, again, what I was getting at uh, just before this. They're trying to use the, the state, the, um, the mechanisms of the state that they don't really think are legitimate anyway, but they're trying to appeal to them and use them. Uh, lots of Canadian flags. Not, uh, not a coincidence that the state will unite all people, all classes of people, under yeah under its protection under its ideology under its symbols we all we all just unite for freedom under canada under the flag we'll all be fine we'll get out of this we'll take we'll we'll take care of it life will be sunny and rosy from here on in uh that's obviously untethered that's doesn't exist you can't unite all elements of the state there's a distinct interest uh all in conflict with each other and will never be united by the Canadian state. If you know a bit of, about the history of the Canadian state, you could ask the indigenous people about it. Ask immigrants, ask LGBTQ people, um, ask like any ordinary working person, uh, ask a, a renter. Um, do they want to be united with their landlords under the, under the Canadian state? What do I have in common with like, uh, with Galen Weston, for instance, why do I want to be united with uh, with uh, Mister Mister Superstore bread fixing guy under the Canadian flag? What, what? How does that benefit me? Quote: What the masses no longer hoped for from the revolutionary proletarian class and from socialism, they now hoped would be achieved by the most able, strong, determined, and bold elements of every social class. All these forces must come together in a community, and this community for the fascists is the nation. The instrument to achieve fascist ideals is, for them, the state. A strong and authoritarian state that will be their very own creation and their obedient tool. This state will tower high above all differences of party and class. They do want a state. They want to use the state, even though it's not legitimate to them now, and to re-establish a state that they're in control of. And it will be, necessarily, authoritarian. They don't have an experience with democracy. Uh, a small business is not a democracy. There's an owner and there's a worker and there's managers in, in between them. There's a hierarchy that's not a democracy. It's opposite of a democracy. There is no democracy at work. You'd say maybe there is in a, in a co-op, but I would argue unless it's a worker's co-op, it's still not truly democratic. So they want the government to more closely resemble a business 
That's why they say you have to run the government as a business. No, you don't have to run the government as a business. A country is not a business. It's not the same as a business at all. If you ran the country like a business, like sh- only shareholders would vote. And what is what is a shareholder? If you don't have anything, you're not, you're going to be you're going to be left out. You're going to be always on the bottom. So like, and a th- this type of authoritarian state is really bad news. And so that's the type of thing that they're they're signaling to um, when they're appealing for the removal of Justin Trudeau. I think. Uh, one of their ideas is that the governor general and the Senate are going to team up to like oust Justin Trudeau somehow. That's simply not going to happen. That can't, that's not a democratic process. That's a coup. Okay. They're, that's a call for a coup. Other people are calling for the hanging of Justin Trudeau, burning him in effigy or whatever. I'm no Justin Trudeau fan, but like, come on. Like what, what type of reality is this? What type of world are you living in? Next point, the ideology of national chauvinism is used by fascist leaders as a cover to incite militarism and imperialist war. The armed forces of fascist Italy were to serve only to defend the fatherland. That was the promise, but the burgeoning size of the army and the enormous scope of armaments are oriented to major imperialist adventures. Hundreds of millions of lira have been approved for heavy industry to build the most modern machines and murderous instruments of death. So he's talking about the um, the uh, fascist movement in Italy when they were in power. That's where fascism uh, started. It grew from uh, Benito Mussolini coined the term uh, fascism. So Italy is its is its birthplace and it spread from there. And the, there's close ties between a fascist ideology and um, and militarism. That's tied with an authoritarian state. You can see in in America. Um, there's often calls for like, um, like Trump wanted to was was not like an imperial ad- adventurist. He wanted to bring troops home from Afghanistan and de-escalate some of the uh, some of the American like military ad- adventurousness around the world. Um, so there's sort of a contradiction here. There like there is a, a fetishization of military power and empire asserting your like preeminence or dominance or control over other people in other places of the world um part of like that's part of making america great or making canada great like establishing uh your presence in the world and that's an an imperial mindset and that goes for the canadian identity of being the world's peacekeeper uh canada being a peacekeeping role why are you why do you need to keep peace in someone else's country what does that have to do with us? And to keep the peace for who? On on whose behalf? You soon find out that Canada has a lot of uh, interest in in resource extraction uh, industries in other countries, specifically mining in South America. So uh, when you think of uh, Canada's international military role, um, it's usually tied to the United States and their interests. And their interests have everything to do with um, extracting value and resources from other people in in other countries. Um, And the protection of that uh, flow of that flow of resources. So just things to keep in mind. There are like elements of the far right that that don't want to get get involved with this and and uh, and don't want to expand like uh, military operations so that's maybe that's an unresolved thing but there is a fetishization of militarization the military 
policing power, a fetishization of power, and especially like masculine dominating power, is um, is a major part of of a, of a fascist movement, of a fascist mindset. You can see how our police are being more militarized. Like every day, our police budgets are going through the roof. You notice their vehicles are getting bigger, more tank-like, the painted black, the helicopter that flies around my house and my neighborhood regularly doing God knows what, uh, burning money. Um, yeah, we have a tank. The Winnipeg Police Service has a like armored personnel carrier. You may as well just like... You may as well just put a, you see the design of like these pickup trucks uh, in the Freedom Convoy. Like, why are pickup trucks so gigantic now? They, you may as well put like a, a cow pusher on, on the front. They're like designed to project an image of power and dominance, and specifically uh, masculine power and dominance. And that mirrors the social structures of the people who are involved in these movements. The Mennonite social structure the small business family social structure, the nuclear family social structure. These are based on like masculine dominance, literally patriarchal. In Mennonites, especially, it's literally patriarchal. That is the wealth gets handed down through the male side of the bloodline. The eldest son generally receives all of it. The daughters get married off to other sons, preferably the eldest son of a business or landowning family. And the and the father, the patriarch of the family, is uh, manages all that wealth. So basically, you're pairing people up, family members up with different parts of the, the family business, the family wealth. You, the family owns multiple houses. You own multiple businesses. You're going to shuffle your kids around or grandkids around to to all of them. It happened in my family. My grandfather's father, um, like literally, like installed them in a grocery store in their hometown and, and dictated that they were going to move out to the, uh, the family homestead in the, in the country and take that over instead of living in town so that their kids, uh, wouldn't grow up heathens. It's just an example there of, of a literal authoritarian patriarchy. That is what it means in practice. It's not some sort of academic concept that SJWs whine about. It's a real thing that, uh, we grew up in. Some of us still are living in it. Like, I don't know. Who are you, Who are most people who grew up in that sort of environment and you're dependent on your family? You're probably going to listen to your dad a lot. Who handles most of your finances? Your dad? Your dad's accountant? Some sort of uncle? Like, where did that all happen? Like, you're being... If you grew up in that context and you happen to be, like, one of the golden children in it, you don't have to do anything. It's all just sort of, like, set up and handed to you. And you're... And your dad sort of like uses you to keep the the money taps flowing through. And you learn through that. And then when he retires or passes on, like you continue to do the same thing. And you will do the same thing with your own children. This is how this like class structure uh, propagates itself. Moving on to the next point. A major characteristic of fascism is the use of organized violence by anti-working class shock troops aiming to crush all independent proletarian activity. In Italy, Mussolini's forces engaged in, quote, direct bloody terror, Zirkin pointed out. Starting in agricultural areas, the fascists, quote, struck out against the rural proletarians whose organizations were devastated and burned out and whose leaders were murdered. 
end quote. Later, quote, the fascist terror extended to the proletarians of the larger cities. And this is the part of fascism that gets, like, fetishized by the left that is people look at it and say, well, it's the, the, the street terror, the street gangs, the physical violence is the, is the main, characteristic, main characteristic of fascism. It isn't. It's one of the character, characteristics of fascism, but it's not all of it, and it's not the main overriding one. It's just, it's one of the factors that, one of the phenomenons that goes ar- along with it. It's the most shocking. It is the most terrifying. It's meant to be it's meant to be, it's meant to terrify and demoralize you, and it will hurt people and kill people if it gets the chance. Uh, you can see it in the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, like explicitly white supremacist and uh, Nazi images. People explicitly being harassed for wearing masks on the street, uh, people being shouted, uh, like homophobic slurs being shouted at people, um, to people who don't look straight enough, I guess, for these people, like the arson at the apartment block I was talking about, you like, you name it, like these, um, this is what they're talking about. These might, these aren't necessarily like coordinated actions, but like, uh, they become coordinated actions soon. Um, the, the Proud Boys are a national chauvinist group. Like if fascism was emergent now, Groups like the Proud Boys would be their shock troops in in the street, basically. As stupid and ridiculous as as that sounds, truly, uh, they would be. Um, It can be stupid and ridiculous and a joke, and also, like, scary and dangerous at the same time. Whatever, take that with a grain of salt. I'm not saying that there's fascist uh, street gangs, like, running around the city right now. But, on the other hand... If you were uh, sort of like a, a kid that didn't really fit in and you grew up in a small town, you would get hassled by or by groups of kids or adults just walking down the street. And th- that's a form of social control. So it doesn't ha- have to be explicitly organized. It can just be a bunch of people on the same page uh, doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, you know, it can, it can be like semi semi-formal or semi-disorganized and still have the same effect when i was an adult like living in steinbeck uh several times i was walking down the street and i'd have like pickup trucks full of teenagers drive by and yell homophobic slurs at me as i was walking down walking down the street like a lot of people have that same uh have had that same experience those aren't like fascist shock troops but it's a form of social control like these kids are entitled to well first of all they've been taught to identify like what is who belongs and who doesn't and when they identify me or a person who they uh who they code as not belonging you react uh hostilely towards them um they they could laugh at you they could make light of what you're saying these are forms of social control um and it's interesting in Italy that they started in the agrarian areas, the rural areas, because that's generally where the far right is the strongest. And if you're uh, a kid or a person who doesn't really fit in or belong, that's where your life will be like uh, the most painful. <clears throat> and that's not a coincidence. Um, so like you're also do that's also part of 
the like the North American analog of the dispossession of the of the indigenous people. That's an starts out in the in agrarian areas. These are like the, it's forceful dispossession of people uh, living on their land, uh, and then uh, Im, uh, white immigrants are brought in to take control and possess that land. Uh, white immigrants who already belong to the economic and social ideology of the Canadian state. So like once you've been dispossessed, like that's already a violent um, and traumatic experience. So that starts in the, in in the agrarian areas, uh, at least here on, on the prairies. And then it's interesting that, that uh, the urban it's the, when they start controlling like urban areas that comes later. You can see that in the private security guards that stores hire to guard their merchandise. Like Canadian Tire, there's literally always like one guy dressed head to toe in black semi-military gear, the black shades and all that stuff. If you do weird stuff, you can get them to follow you around. Uh, It's fun if you're a white guy like me. You can, I don't know, take stuff off shelves and like put them other places and... I don't know, double back and just generally like look suspicious. But for, uh, for an indigenous person, for instance, that'd be a lot more dangerous to do. Um, I've seen indigenous people get harassed by security guards in stores. Why do you need a security guard dressed head to toe in black paramilitary gear in a grocery store or like value village? I've seen them. This didn't happen when I was a kid. This is a fairly recent thing, and you can't believably argue that they're there to promote public safety. They're there to protect the private property of the retailer. How are you protecting public safety from people like shoplifting groceries or secondhand clothing? So what's what's the purpose of that? And so you you don't need like shock troops in the street if you have uh, paramilitary personnel at grocery stores and secondhand stores. Um, so what's, what's really the difference? Uh, I think that's something we need, we need to think about. Having police officers stationed in schools, too, is, a, is another one. And that's something that happens here in Winnipeg. And that's to condition people to, to get people used to the presence of police in their, in their daily lives, to be basically used to being surveilled and and watched and that you know like someone's gonna keep you in line if you step out of line that's basically it uh this is somewhat tied into the next point the ideology of racism and racist scapegoating is central to fascism's message while this aspect was not yet entirely clear in 1923 zetkin nevertheless pointed out how in germany quote the fascist program is exhausted by the phrase beat up the jews end quote we still have anti-semitism here you still have people talking about uh, the Jews and in relation to international finance and globalism and all that stuff. Sometimes that's shorthand for just uh, anti-Semitism. Sometimes it's not. You can parse out by the context. Like Leftists are against uh, global financialization anyway, but they don't mean Jews. When the right talks about global finance, they do generally mean Jews. Um, that goes back a long time. That's a holdover from, from Europe, European anti-Semitism. It goes back centuries. Um, the Nazis 
scapegoated Jews for good reason, ideology, ideologically, they're creating a German ethno-state. Uh, and it's not, and in the far right in Canada, we will, we might not end up with an ethno-state, but the people in charge will undoubtedly be white and male for the most part. Um, and there is scapegoating of, of any group that isn't white, male, straight. I'm sorry, that's just how how it works. Um, that's why it's important in working class uh, organizations and groups of ordinary people in our neighborhoods and communities um, because we do live integrated with each other, people from all sorts of different types of backgrounds and lifestyles uh, that uh, are working class institutions and communities are integrated as much as possible. So there is no racial scapegoating. There is no scapegoating of LGBTQ people. Um, there's no scapegoating of, of anybody because scapegoating will happen. You can see it in COVID. Uh, um, a lot of the messaging from, uh, from the state is about like shaming anti-vaxxers. It's not, not a coincidence that the freedom convoy is made up of, of anti-vaxxers. They do feel scapegoated, um, and persecuted and like for good reason, because they are being scapegoated and, and persecuted to an extent, not a large extent, not to the same extent that uh, immigrants and ind indigenous people are persecuted, obviously. But to them, um, it's the it's the P, the princess and the P uh, sort of scenario. They haven't experienced real persecution, so this type of like inconvenience uh, really gets up their asses. The my, my body, my choice kind of thing where they would w willingly live in what they call like a perpetual lockdown and think that it's uh, actual persecution. When they mean freedom, they just mean like the freedom to go, go around with impunity again, doing like whatever the hell that they want. That's not freedom. That If they had that freedom, the freedom of the vast majority of people living around them would be significantly significantly impeded. So their freedom destroys freedom for most people. And um, so scapegoating, uh, scapegoating is part of the far right and is not what we want. Um, when ordinary people complain about the rich people and the government, that is not scapegoating. Uh, that's accurately uh, understanding their plight and situation and who and what uh, is causing them to suffer. Um, that's an accurate assessment of the world. It might not be very nuanced, but it's accurate. Uh, the next point. At a certain point, important sections of the capitalist class begin to support and finance the fascist movement, seeing it as a way to counter the threat of proletarian revolution. Quote, the bourgeoisie can no longer rely on its state's regular means of force to secure its class rule. For that, it needs an extra-legal and non-state instrument of force. That has been offered by the motley assemblage that makes up the fascist mob. End quote. The capitalists, quote, openly sponsored fascist terrorism, supporting it with money and in other ways, end quote. And that's happening now with the, with the Freedom Convoy. Parts of the capitalist class are already aligning itself with it. We have the oust of Aaron O'Toole, replaced by Candace Bergen, who's more, uh, more sympathetic to Freedom Convoy types to the far right. Um, the movement is being funded by anonymous donors, uh, um, by American money, 
Um, we won't speculate on where that money is coming from, but we can say with some certainty that um, that it is being funded by uh, rich people who are happen to be far right. So that's um, a capital capitalist openly sponsoring fascism. I would say. I mean, that can correspond to it anyway. Um, you have like endorsement by Donald Trump and members of the far right media in the United States, the alt right, etc. These are like extra. It's an extra legal tool that they can use to um, to assert power. It's non governmental. It's not paid for by the taxpayers. It's not the traditional military or or police or government. It exists like outside that framework, and in that way, it's really um, it's really useful. You can do a lot of things with uh, with the motley uh, collection of uh, entitled malcontents that you can't do with like your city's police force or even the RCMP, even though you would like to use them. Um, at some point in the fascist process, there is a melding, and um, the fetishization of the military and, and policing. Um, there is an integration in ideology with a lot of police officers and military with, uh, with the far right. I'm not saying all of them are, but their role in society is literally to protect profit and, and private property, which puts them at odds with most ordinary people and especially the poor and vulnerable. There is that sort of that symbiotic sort of a environment. There is that sort of like symbiotic relationship between between the uh, state's tools to enforce its will and the far right, the law and order mindset. But in this case, um, in this case, the far right is using the movement as an extra legal uh, tool. And that's important to note. Okay, the last point here is once in power, fascism tends to become bureaucratized, moves away from its earlier demagogic appeals and uh, leading to a resurgence of class contradictions and class struggle. Quote, there is a blatant contradiction between what fascism promised and what it delivered to the masses. All the talk about how the fascist state will place the interests of the nation above everything else, once exposed to the winds of reality, burst like a soap bubble. The nation revealed itself to be the bourgeoisie. The ideal fascist state revealed itself to be the vulgar, unscrupulous bourgeois class state. Class contradictions are mightier than all the ideologies that deny their existence. And I think that's uh, extremely true and was borne out in reality in Italy and Germany in the 20th centuries, leading directly to the outbreak of World War II and all the mass global suffering that has caused and has created the world in large part that we're living in now. That as Clara Zetkin points out, and she didn't really, she died in 1933, so she didn't live long enough to see all the horrors uh, that fascism brought. But one thing that she did predict that, uh, that came to pass was that fascism wasn't able to deliver the promises uh, that it said it would in its movement organizing phase before it took power. Once it took power, it became melded with the existing state bureaucracy. Uh, it doesn't see, seek to overthrow, overturn the state and replace it with something else. It seeks to overtake the state integrates with with the bureaucracy um and then because of that its revolutionary intentions dissipate its revolutionary energy dissipates and just gets uh reinforced sort of it reinforces this the structure of the status quo 
Uh, it just like shores up its holes and makes sure that um, that the state does what it's intended to do for this class of people uh, that are now controlling it. Uh, that's that's the idea. So um, the the freedom convoy promises of of freedom, whatever that means, and whatever it is that they are hoping to like achieve peace, economic stability, the, you, the papering over the papering over of social divisions by being united by the state. None of that will happen. It didn't happen in Italy and Germany. And if uh, fascism is ever established in North America, it won't be able to do it here either because the like physical material conflicts among the different classes in society don't go away. In fact, they only uh, become stronger the more pressure you put on them. Um, and they're under a lot of pressure right now. So we have movements like like the Freedom Convoy uh, being an expression of that. Is it explicitly fascist or not? I don't know. I feel confident enough that like using this uh, description of the characteristics of fascism, that it seems to have a lot in common with it, okay? That's all that I'm saying. Is the Freedom Convoy fascist? Maybe I would say yes. I'd be inclined to say yes, it is. Uh, is it a surprise? Not really. Does it mean they're going to take power? Uh, not necessarily. Is it something to be terrified of? I guess it depends on your proximity to it and if you're explicitly targeted by them. It is extremely concerning. Again, because like I said, the left is functionally non-existent in Canada. There are leftist groups around. There are uh, working class uh, organizations like labor unions. There are lots of people doing good work, but it's not organized to the same extent that the far right is. Essentially, when, when COVID hit, I think a lot of leftists were just like, oh, well, okay, pandemic, uh, everyone moved to Zoom and Slack, and then they just stayed there, and a lot of leftists sort of like fell away, stopped organizing, all organizing basically like ground to a halt, like they're not doing it. What the far right does then is like this, they said this pandemic is bullshit. These regulations suck. We're not going to follow them. These rules don't apply to us. We're, we are asserting our freedom. We are asserting our autonomy. And they continued having family gatherings. They continued having barbecues. They continued doing business as usual. They continued forcing their employees to come into work. Their machinery kept operating and they were galvanized by this feeling of solidarity uh, that they were under pressure, that they were under attack. And that's what grows solidarity. It's that pressure binding people together. And they've been using that social pressure of the pandemic to become stronger. They've never stopped organizing. And the far, and the far right has just like blown the left completely out of the water to the extent that like it's... The left is just irrelevant right now. Um, they have churches holding uh, holding services inside, outside, uh, on big screens like at Springs. I bet Southland and Steinbeck maybe had something similar to that. And these are far right evangelical churches. Like they are for they are fomenting this discontent. Our health minister is a member of Springs Church for goodness sakes. Like how. Uh, 
how is the government supposed to effectively uh, effectively provide like healthcare during a pandemic when the health minister is part of a far right evangelical church? Uh, it's who is ideological ideologically opposed to funding pe- public healthcare. It doesn't work. So they they get together and they tell themselves that this is all communism, this is all socialism, and for a lot of these groups, including Mennonites, have. Uh, historical memories of suffering under communism, under Stalin, in the Soviet Union. So this is generational trauma that's being that's being triggered and reinforced. That communism is following us here, and that's a paranoia that is extremely strong within Mennonite families and communities. And that is what they're responding to and reacting to right now. And that's where the term reactionary comes from. It is they are reacting to a to a fear they're reacting to a challenge to their social and economic authority in their communities you know maybe maybe rightly so so that's a lesson for ordinary people uh like us if you're listening to this uh you're an ordinary person you have much more in common probably uh with leftists socialists anarchists and and communists than you do with uh your local uh excavation company or boat dealership owner uh, in Eltona or, or Niverville or wherever uh, you happen to be from. So um, it doesn't mean you have to uh, identify yourself as one of those, like as a far left radical or anything like that. But what you do have to do is like take what's happening around you seriously. You can post about it and joke about it or whatever you can, but take it seriously and do what you need to do in real life to protect yourself, to keep yourself safe, to keep yourself sane, and to keep the people around you safe and sane as much as you're able to. And that's where it's, that's where it's got to start, is when ordinary people start acting out of their own self-interest and the interest in the, of their communities to assert power within their families and within their communities. There's no other way out of it. I'm like completely serious. You do have to do something. <clears throat> That might mean severing relationships for friends, family who are too far gone, you're not going to reach them, who are just, who hold too much social power around you. That's just how she goes. That's how the cookie crumbles. There's nothing personal about it. Um, you can always reestablish relationships later uh, if, if circumstances change or if people's uh, ideologies change. So for those people, there are just some people you're going to have to let go. Um, people around you who uh, have good intentions but are stuck and don't know what to do, um, those are maybe people that you can, that you can reach. Uh, so like be, be intentional. And, you know, I know it is a pandemic and it is really tough, and, uh, but Zoom and Slack are not cutting it, and it's not, uh, uh, it's not going to work. It was never going to work. Uh, you, a lot of, uh, I think, I think the left just really had no idea what, uh, what they're up against. And especially here in, in Manitoba. So I think I'm going to leave it there for now. Uh, stop the polemic, stop the propaganda, stop the rant. And, uh, I do want to follow up more specifically with, uh, why are there so many Mennonites in the freedom rally? Why is there, there's now a Mennonite from Southern Manitoba who's the leader of the 
National Conservative Party. We had a Mennonite from Southern Manitoba be the interim leader of the provincial uh, Conservative Party. So, like, what what's the deal with uh, the far right and Mennonites? Uh, I'm that's what I want to do next. So, stay tuned for that and keep yourselves safe out there. Be well. <laughs>